Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Veterans in Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and joining us today is our very special guest, Dr. Michael McDowell. Dr. McDowell, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited. Absolutely. Dr. McDowell, can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself before we dive into our questions? I'd be more than happy to do that. I am uh, Mike McDowell, and I have been, um, I was a teacher years ago uh, for about eight years prior to joining the Marine Corps. I was 30 years old, went into officer candidate school uh, in January of 2000, January 25th, 2001. As everyone knows, their <laughs> beginning base injury date and then I uh, went to OCS uh, went to the basic school uh, experienced post 9/11 well experienced 911 uh, as it as it actually happened in Quantico Virginia which is right down the road from the Pentagon and uh, became an artillery officer and essentially um, kind of cut my teeth that way through the military for I got out after six, 16 years I took the uh, President Obama's Terra which is the temporary the retirement authorization so I get a little bit of a reduced perpetuity, but it allowed me to explore some other things. I was ready. I had six combat deployments during that time and wow. uh, felt like I felt uh, that I served the country as well as I could under some tremendous uh, uh, experiences with young people, uh, men and women that have really shaped me to be uh, who I am today. And uh, just I'm just fortunate uh, across the board. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So this episode, we're going to be party, party with Artie. <laughs> uh, so the king, the king of battle. You know? <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you something. So your background, uh, obviously your, your military experience, your experience as a veteran and your experience in, in higher education. And I know we're going to talk about your research here in a little bit, but all these things combined, can you, can you really answer for our listeners in your view as you see it, what is something that veterans in higher education are doing well currently? Well, my personal research has shown that they, they are very, very disciplined. They have the knowledge and motivation to be very, very successful. Uh, historically, uh, they, they graduate as much or more, or I guess, ahead in terms of the overall statistical data numbers. Uh, uh, they are extremely loyal, extremely driven individuals, most of which when they come to post-service experience, some of them are actually still in service when they go, but they have very unique needs though. And that's one of the things that are out of their control uh, in terms of the, uh, the application or the uh, introduction to those support needs. And, and those are, that's not on them. That's certainly on the organizational structure and uh, certainly something that we continually need to improve. 
absolutely. <laughs> I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Excellent, um, Mike. So what do you see on the flip side of this? What, what is something that veterans themselves in higher education could approve upon? Well, I think they're really at a disservice at the beginning because when they leave active duty service, as you well know, uh, they are divorced of their community, uh, their tribe. And that tribe is very, very ingrained into the, you know, that's rooted, tapped into the ground deeply. You know, we come from a very socialized culture. Uh, once we are into the subculture from leaving the civilian world into our world, uh, we're put on yellow footprints and, and uh, indoctrinated into the social system so that everything is taken care of for them. And you know, we know that, you know, as inherently dangerous as the, uh, the industry is in terms of war fighting uh, and military service, <clears throat> it's very, very stable. It's very safe. And so as they leave active duty service, what I have found in my research is that they don't fit anywhere. They're not 18 to 22. They have families, almost half of them of my survey participants had families which means that they're not going to be involved in the Greek life, the traditional, you know, they're non-traditional learners and they learn. And that is an educational psychologist uh, uh, focus, which is my area of expertise and how you learn. They don't learn the same way. They learn differently. They have more context uh, in schema, as we would say in academia, right. to really um, reduce cognitive load in a lot of ways, but also it adds to some issues at the end because they're working two jobs. They don't fit into the community. Uh, most of my research has shown that they don't particularly expect people to understand them, which is very valid because they don't understand us <laughs> and they try. It's not that the people in the academia don't try. I think they respect what we've done, but they really, it's behind the curtain, you know, and, um, Again, a lot of the manifestations of experiences that they have, whether it's, you know, MST, military sexual trauma, whether there's some sort of other trauma-based stuff or combat trauma, which is, again, just as, just as stressful, those issues aren't coming out right away. They come out years later sometimes. And so if you're not in an environment that's supportive of that, that can be very difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned those things because like you mentioned, uh, it's not for the lack of, of many higher education institutions trying. Um, they just simply miss the mark and there's still, there's still room for refinement, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like with any other group, it is going to be a, a perpetual refinement, but, but still there, there's, there's a lot of headway. Um, so Mike, talk to us a little bit about your background, sir. What prompted you, like in the beginning when you were introducing yourself, you mentioned that you uh, decided to join the Marines around the age of 30. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what motivated you to join and what life was like for you when you were serving? No, that's a great question. You know, people think that that was a massive change for me. When in actuality, you know, as an athlete, I was a college basketball player. So I love physical fitness um, and I cannot run everybody. So that was really good at, you know, because the limit is 27. You have to get a waiver. Uh, but when you can PT, you know, we, for your guests or your audience, you know, it's, it's PT physical training and not physical therapy, but although you now at my age, you know, our age, you have to have physical therapy to <laughs> right. survive what you do. But, um, but 
but that was something I always loved. I loved being a part of a team and that's what really drew me in at that age. Um, uh, and so anyway, as, 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 you know, going, going into these experiences, I wanted to serve. I planned on only doing like four years and just, I just wanted to do it, you know, and right. once that ticket, get the Super Bowl ring, of course, we didn't know we were at war at the time. Cause it was when we, when I went in again, it was prior to nine 11, it was uh, about eight months prior. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how that played out really. And really, really shaped my life in terms of the experience, uh, Overall, I mean, I can't think in the private sector what I'll ever do to match right. those, those experiences and leadership. And you really, it's a bureaucratic leadership model. It's top down, as we all know, bottom up refinement in a lot of ways. It's decentralized. It's not, you know, micromanaged, although there are many leaders that certainly do that. Right. Um, but, you know, it is different than the civilian sector. And I think that's one of the reasons we kind of struggle a little bit coming out if you're not receptive. And I'll talk about this, I guess, a little bit more in terms of the population that I did get. Um, I learned a lot of stuff beyond what I thought I was going to get. That's why I love it. I love learning about it. But so anyway, so hopefully that answers the, a little bit of the question <laughs> in terms of, you know, that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious, a, a little tag on question here. You said you, you know, you went in eight months before 9-11 happened when you were in the middle of training. And I, I'm sure this was announced to you, you know, everything that had happened. Uh, what was your what was your mood shift or your mind frame kind of change that occurred uh, upon hearing this news? Well, I mean, everybody remembers specifically where they were at when, you know, it's almost like, you know, those our parents who were experienced JFK when he was shot, you know, it's assassinated. So we had just gone out of a class at the basic school and literally had a break. And so my roommate had a TV, which nobody hardly had. So everybody was just, you know, it was almost like a dream. You know, you always have those experiences where people, you know, the gunny comes in there yelling, you know, that they, and that's part of one of the exercises, you know, we're going to war with North Korea, you know, this, that, and the other, and it's all facade, you know, and you don't know that at the time because you're isolated because right. you have no content with the outside world, especially at the OCS where you do the, that particular training. And now it's like, you're watching this on TV going, I mean, it was just, it was just like a dream. It was just like, is this really happening? And then of course when it hit down the road, you know, up north, you know, from Quantico to, to, you know, the Pentagon, right. you know, driving up there. I mean, I drove, through, I drove on that build. I drove that building. I went out and had dinner with some friends and actually came back the night before that happened. Oh, so wow. when you come back and see it, just, it, it just, it puts everything in perspective and you're a part of it. And I love that. And as anybody that has a, you know, a, a draconian warrior based mindset where you're just like, you know, there's, what do they say? There's wolves and there's sheep, you know, and, right. you know, those of us that have, that have served and want to do that stuff is, this is like, you can't write a better script, right? I mean, that to me and putting purpose in what you're doing. So it was surreal. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And so then you, you become an artillery officer and, and what was your time like as an artillery officer in the Marine Corps? That was great. I, I got to do a lot of great great things in terms of, of different things. Uh, 
and just built some incredible relationships. You know, and you know, and as a as a Ford observer, and even in mortars, you're doing everything. Our artillery, particularly for your audience, artillerymen and women now are very, very diverse in terms of their jobs. We we are on the line with line companies as Ford observers. We can be you know fire direction officers. You know, we can be logistics people because you got to have stuff. Supply officer, you're doing all these things. Communications, you're doing, and it's really a cool MOS. Now, it, a lot of things are changing in the industry because we're getting a lot of us, the cannons are going away. A lot of them, they're taking them all, most of the battalions. So they're going to rockets and HIMARS, which is very, very decentralized in terms of command and control. And, and uh, you know, you can shoot those things across the state, you know, literally, but it's the technology is getting better and better. But anyway, so that was my experience. And so I, I served on the two different MU, which is Marine Expeditionary Unit deployments, which is for your audience members or, you know, we, we deploy for six months and I was on a headquarters element for two of those things. And okay. um, so I got to see staff work done in a great way, learning about the rapid response planning process, uh, the R2P2 process as well as the uh, Marine Corps planning process and a lot of the joint stuff. I was at CENTCOM one tour with those guys and that's a joint planning process. So again, for me, and I, I like fixing problems. I told you, I don't just read about them. I want to be able to actually install and imp implement that change. Uh, so I got to be really, I think, pretty efficient at it. And uh, that really helped me uh, coming out specifically when I got out and went and I got an MBA right from USC during my last two years of service because I wanted something that was going to put me into a competitive market because I really didn't have a personal brand and, and we'll talk about that I'm sure later but I, I really struggled getting out which is really kind of it, it all worked out for me in a in a really I couldn't have plan this the way it did, but I wanted to prepare myself. I'm a planner, like a lot of Marines before me. I want to know what's going on. I don't care how much money I'm making, but I got to know what the plan is because that's what gives me stability in terms of being able to sleep at night. And, and so I'm a real big planner, but then I struggled coming out with an MBA from USC. It was like, I couldn't get wow. a job. I kept losing jobs to people who have been in the industry, you know, uh, for 15 years while I was serving, they were in that industry, right? They, they hire them every time they don't hire you. <laughs> and that's where the, I learned a lot of stuff from that end. And I thought, how can a Lance corporal do this? You know, and, uh, in corporate itself, they say they hire vets. I would argue they hire vets, but very low money. And, uh, it's always you know, entry level jobs. It is. And it's like, and they think, well, you're going to go into security. Well, the data doesn't suggest that, you know, the data right. suggests for us that, you know, 70% of our vets don't do what they did in the military. So when Google spends X amount of millions of dollars on a reverse MOS designator lookup, you know, on their Google search engines, that doesn't mathematically make any sense because if, if you're, you're a corpsman, well, you're going to be a corpsman. Great. Well, you're going to go to medicine, right? Or, or, well, like, no, I don't, I got told to do that. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> want to do that. And I saw you know, I had two combat tours. I lost so many of my brothers and sisters. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go into IT or something. And, right. and so, you know, then they can't get a job because the way the job description is written, which is again, an organizational gap, which we identified in the, in the dissertation that, you know, they don't, they, oh, you got to have three years of Microsoft office experience. And the poor kid's been out in the dirt for four years you know, with infantrymen and women, and it's like, 
where are they going to get that? And so they don't even apply for that job. So again, there's a lot of things that, you know, we'll talk about here in a second, but that really spurred me, that transitional experience that I had, the lack of success that I had and the way I felt, I felt depressed. I felt like I couldn't take care of my family. I felt like, and I had a pension, you know, I had a small pension that allowed me to at least, I'm not going to be on the street, um, but I'm in LA, you know, uh, it's very expensive to live here. Right. Um, and I don't, if I lived in a small market and back home in, a, you know, Eastern Oregon, I could probably do it. Uh, but I didn't know what my disability rating was going to be yet. And so the way the process is set up for transition, it really is not in alignment to success in terms of, I mean, some people do fine. Some people really do really well early, but most of them really don't. They don't, they're not in meaningful career opportunities. They're in jobs, you know, but they end up quitting. And that's where the data, again, Syracuse had a great study 2015. um, And I'm going to try to replicate this study with our organization. uh, But, you know, 43% of our veterans don't have a one-year anniversary in their first job. You know, oh, wow. 43%, almost 70% don't have a two-year anniversary. Now you think about those numbers and you're going, hmm, because for me, again, as a practitioner, I want to take that back to corporate and work that relationship so that I say, listen, that's a sunk cost for you. It costs me when, when Luke starts and he works his job and then leaves and then Mike comes in and backfills you, uh, my, you know, I'm Luke 2.0, that's a fifteen dollars to $30,000 loss in terms of search costs, committees to be on the committees, uh, stopping what they're doing to, to work with HR, the training piece. And then you just leave after the first year. You know, I want to be able to take that monetize, you know, monetize, we've monetized it and then go back to corporate and say, listen, we can solve that problem. That's your risk. We can solve it. They want the vets. They need the vets right now with our socioeconomic condition, with our, uh, with our country today, because, there's not enough people, skilled labor, labor trades. And that's the other thing I've done incredible amounts of research on that, that you have to bring in multiple stakeholders because if you just, right. you know, if you're a VSO, a veteran service organization, and you're doing great stuff, God bless you. I mean, there's 45,000 of us in the, or them in the, in the industry. Right. That's so data. There's no shortage of people doing great work. Problem is it's not, it's, it's siloed. It's, it's, it's all, it's not in alignment. They don't share data. They're all searching for the same dollars. They don't, they don't really work together because they don't really want to lose that, that brand. Um, you know, and so we want to be able the whole thing with the Valor Club, which will, you know, which is what my dissertation is about. It's under a pseudonym, obviously, because I can't use my, my, my uh, actual company, but the model that we're doing is an answer and a gap filler in terms of, of affordable housing. And, and then we want to bring all these people together for a better experience so that the, the veterans in transition, they get the great training. They have a safe place to live that's beautiful. We're going to build some really cool stuff. And, and then they have a community, which there are on other brothers and sisters. It's a social tribe within a tribe. And then we're going to bring the people in. They can get socially comp- competent. And then uh, the companies get a better employee in terms of a person that's been redirected in civilian culture that understands how to talk and how to act doesn't use you know minimizes acronyms and confusion but on the same part we want to be able to bring that relationship in the corporate side and say that's half the battle the other half is you understanding us and i mean you being your population that's the other side you got to meet us in the middle veterans will bust their tail to learn the new culture 
but you got to do your part. So we want to be able to bring in kind of a spread out of a, almost a consultancy relationship where we help their HR departments develop and job descriptions that are supportive of the, of the experience and how to read them and how to write the job description. Because as I said before, somebody that's interested in uh, going into IT from an MOS like infantry or artillery aren't necessarily going to be aligned. They have the cognitive architecture to do very well, but we want to be able to kind of streamline a little bit better because we want these veterans to stay in place. You know, we want them to be able to stay in a company five, six years because it is stable for the company. They got actually get their ROI, their return on invested capital. And then also the veterans stay in, they feel a part of a compute, you know, community. They're not jumping. Um, and uh, we think that we're in a really good period of our economics in our country today uh, with market demand and with, you know, 20% of our workforce is going to be over the age of 65 by 2024. Those are all your people in leadership, right? And manufacturing can't get people into those industries and, and trades particularly. Everyone's got to go to college. You know, we say to them, listen, I mean, I can get you a $60,000 job at an automobile company. I won't say the name, you know, that the one, because they're going to be working with us and, um, you know, $60,000 of three, you know, three months of mech tech training as a, as a mechanic and you can make 60 grand coming out. Oh, and by the way, you can buy a house for 120,000 in San Antonio, Texas. You right, know, right. how do you build, how do you build personal wealth? That's the problem with our whole millennial generation and whatever's coming after, you know, what a Gen Z or whatever it is. Um, they don't own anything. And that's a bigger arching problem in terms of personal wealth. You can't build personal wealth if you don't own property. It doesn't work. And so now, especially in LA and other issues, we have cost of living indexes. No one can live here. You know, so that's why we did it there because it's very, very affordable. And that's where the companies are going. Oracle, Hewlett Packard just announced last week, a uh, week before that they're leaving to go to Texas. Tesla's already yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Toyota's there. They're in San Antonio. They just built the $391 million Tacoma Tundra factory there. They need veterans. And that's why we want to get these folks into these spaces. If they want to get a bachelor's degree too, great, we'll help them, but get a trade first so that you can make good money. And then you can go to school at night or whatever you want to do uh, to support your family and make good money. You know, so that's the model basically. So this is really interesting because, you know, just by you talking about this, you've answered some of these questions. So obviously your transition was challenging, but the fruit of this is it's inspired you to come up with this great business, right? That you have been able to support with your doctoral work and and do research to really validate some of these things, these market ideas and social needs that you've uncovered, which is I love. And I, I want to tell all the listeners right now that, uh, you know, Dr. McDowell has defended his dissertation successfully and his background is in education and for the listeners who sometimes people don't make these connections with education outside of you know either primary secondary or higher education but I think what you're doing is a great example while you're discussing giving services and kind of molding to these social needs of a group of people, a huge component of that is education, you know, like just what you've described, educating the individual veteran, educating the stakeholders, educating the public uh, is all a super big piece in there. 
So can you talk to our listeners a little bit uh, specifically about your research and kind of some of those highlights that, that you uncovered? Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that as I just finished three years. <laughs> you know, I think, what, as you know, as a scholar, it's like three years, you know, people say, wow, you got a doctor degree. I'm like, it's really not that hard. I mean, in terms of the actual, you know, your failing tests. And all that. It's just, you got to have tremendous persistence Yes. And you got to love what you're doing because if yes. you don't, if you're not on fire for this thing, it ain't going to happen because you're going to burn out and lose that interest, which is so important in learning. So, so basically when I went to school at USC, when I was 18, fall of 18, I always want to do something with vets and, and I, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself, you know, for those of your listeners that are, that are contemplating a doctoral degree, um, which is a phenomenally great endeavor. And by the way, I got a pitch. There's no right time. It's just right now. You know, I want to, that's what kind of, that's my, that was my nemesis, you know, or my, uh, my thought process with somebody that said that at the beginning of this program. But, um, but on a serious note, I wanted to do something that was relevant today. And I felt like from my own personal experience in my context, I went through those experiences. So I thought, well, the problem of practice that I had was why some veterans do well and other ones don't. You know, that was really it because I thought, well, we are, are to believe that it's PTSD, it's, you know, it's that and the other. And I was interviewing these people during classes on how to do qualitative research and learning these skills that we learn. And I went to a, a place, a VOA, which is Volunteers of America, and they have their temporarily people who are, are temporarily and uh, unsheltered. And, and so they give them help and support. But I interviewed a bunch of these folks, a lot of Marines, sailors, a bunch of people. It was really great. But I learned a lot about that prior to the dissertation, that they didn't have the skills. Uh, it was very noticeable that they didn't know how to do personal finance. Uh, and again, not all of them, but, but most of them in my small little interviews, practice interviews were that way. They didn't know how to do personal finance. They didn't know how to buy insurance. I mean, again, where they're coming from, a socialized system where everything's taken care of for them. And then they have leadership. They have somebody that's on their tail the whole time doing it or asking the questions. And so that's where I just saw this big, huge gaping hole that, God, we can do this better. I mean, these guys live in the barracks for four years, and I'm talking about first or second termers, you know, ones that aren't married, and they've never cooked a meal. I mean, these guys don't know how to cook. Right. You know, I mean, they eat at the chow hall. So when they leave, they go, well, I'll just eat out all the time. Well, you know, you can't afford that. It's too expensive, and it's not even good for you. Right. You know, they don't know anything about nutrition. They don't know all that stuff. So they don't even know how to do a lease agreement. You know, so I was thinking, man, we're, we got to do a better job of this. So I said, let's just explore this a little bit. And that's kind of where it came from. And, and I really, as a learning and that psych focus, which is again, what I, I've studied, I'm fascinated by learning. That's kind of how I, I framed this, this design on a gap analysis uh, with Dick Clark and uh, well, Estes, uh, 2006, they designed this model. And I thought it was very applicable with what I was doing with Valor Club. And I thought, well, let's just, let's just cut this out. Let's just see what happens with it. And um, I wanted, I studied the knowledge, motivation, organizational influences uh, affecting transition vets, transitioning service members. And uh, uh wanted to learn really four different things of that. One, you know, what is our knowledge, motivation, organizational influences of mental and behavioral health in terms of, and I, I said resources across the board, you know, in terms of anything, could be legal resources, whatever. And then the other one was access to benefits, knowledge, motivation, organizational influences to benefits. We call it CAMO2, 
meaningful employment? Do they know what meaningful employment is? Are they motivated by meaningful employment? And as the organization Is there a gap in meaningful employment? And then the last one was cultural competency training, camos to uh, uh, cultural competence. Do they have the skills to be able to get into the civilian sector? So those were the four questions I was trying to answer and um, in that, and and I built it off of that. And I wanted to do a mixed method because I thought, well, I could do a quantitative uh, and certainly do a huge study and, and, you know, find and get a lot of people in a big, you know, a big net and, but what I found was I thought, you know, I'm going to do a mixed method because I really wanted to get the interviews because the, as you know, as a scholar, I couldn't ask every question on the survey. And I wanted to be able, once I got the information off the quantitative survey, I wanted to dig deeper. And uh, that's what I did. So. That's great. I, you know, and I think for those listeners who, who have not gone down this doctoral road yet, um, there's a big camp in scholarship uh, where someone will say, well, you have to do quantitative because X, Y, and Z, and then you have to do qualitative because X, Y, and Z answer <laughs> kind of comically against each other. So I love the route that you took. Cause I, I think about this often, you know, it's really, what are you studying is what should dictate how you study it. And, you know, I think you highlighted something great here while you could have had big numbers with quantitative alone, it sounds to me like the very thing that you're doing really begged for and needed that qualitative Mm -hmm. descriptional feedback that you just can't get from checking the answer. So that's, that's really, really great. And and I want people to understand that that mixed methods is a, a great way to flesh out a lot of detail and cover a lot of ground. Well, and it really sets you up for follow-on studies too. And that's what really, I'm really excited about the future because especially when we have our vets that'll be on our campus, the ability to gather data, you know, I want to tell your audience, and I'm sure you have a wide variety in terms of people that are going at school now and that will go to school and people who have already graduated. You know, the, the thing about this and the government doesn't do a great job with this because of the way the structure is built, it's being able to assess what you implement. That's one thing they don't do, or not all the time. And when I want your audience to understand, when they go into the military, they're under the umbrella of the DOD, the Department of Defense. When that period is finished, and you and I grab our, our DD-214, which is basically a, a, a transcript of all of our service, tells us right. everything about That's what we did, all the awards we got, whatever. And then we immediately go into the VA system, if... And only if you register to, to enter the VA system. If Mike or Luke or Joe or whoever, Su- Susie, she leaves and doesn't sign up for VA, we don't know where they're at. We don't know where they live. We don't know what their needs are. We can't push resources out to them as a veteran commissioner or anything that I'm, that I'm serving on, which I do serve for the, the LA County v, uh, Veterans Commission. So that's a problem. That's an organizational gap, which by the way, I found out one of the many things, because that's the way the process works. And only 60% of our veterans actually register with VA because they'll either work and go into the private sector. So they don't need insurance, or maybe they just don't like the, the brand. You know, they don't like the, you know, what they know of it to be, you know, effective or whatever. So 
that's a problem. That's an organizational national problem. And I would also argue that there was a, a female, it was a male and a female both did some really great research. And one of them, I think, worked or had association with VA. This data point, actually, I didn't put in my lit review, but I'm going to build off of this. This bumper sticker of 20 suicides a day, which again, the VA has documented. Right. Um, which, by the way, I, I'm the data is skewed in terms of people hurting themselves are usually older. They're not necessarily 9-11 vets, although they are unfortunately in that population. But one of the things about the suicide function is that of those 20, well, let's say if you have 20 or I don't know, 20 suicides a day, of the 20, 70% of those people are not in VA mental or, or physical health care. Right. Okay. So now, we don't do we ask that question in terms of how we develop innovative programming to really pitch so is the problem us not getting those vets because it's apparently to me with those numbers that if you're in the va system like significantly less likely to hurt themselves so maybe we need to do educational or marketing functionality um you know to to probably again that's the practitioner in me to say okay great well because again that's where we struggle especially with tap with the transition assistance program uh which is again um for your listeners is a mandatory one-week program that every, you know, it's supposed to be every transitioning veteran by law, I think it, or by Congress said 85% is what the goal is, which we hit most of the time with active duty. But by the way, the reservists and guards are way short of that. Right. But that's the deal. You know, that's the government's, the government's um, um, attempt to get us cultural, you know, you know, reassemble, you know, reassimilated into the, the 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 sector. Well, the problem with it is, from an educational perspective, the pedagogy on it is completely, it's it's not good because yeah, they teach you how to write a resume, or whatever, and it's actually run not by DOD, it's run by Department of Labor. People don't realize that, but it's it's actually three days of it is DOL, one day is DOD, and then one day is VA. So, which again is a governmental attempt to get us prepped and it briefs well that, hey, we saw these of the 200,000 people who, who, who exit active duty service every year, you know, we can get 85% of them. Great. They go through it. Okay, great. That's a great number. But how many of them, there's no assessment. <laughs> how do you, how do you right. know what they know when they leave? How, are they smarter? Are they, are they less likely to have more knowledge or are they more motivated? I mean, where, where is this at? And so that's where the flaw is. And what we're trying to do at the Valor Club, tying all this together, is to create with DOD and Department of Labor a better transitional program where they could go to Valor Club to live there, you know, and now... We can use SkillBridge, which is, again, a program that the Department of uh, uh, DOD has designed with the DO I think Department of Labor also helped it. But uh, that program is designed for six months. You know, uh, Luke or Mike can leave uh, active duty service up to six months and go find an internship of, of whoever we can find that's in the uh, SkillBridge network that will be paid by the DOD. So I go down there and work at where, say, work at uh, Toyota or Holt Caterpillar in San Antonio. It's basically paid by the DOD. So the, uh, the company doesn't have any capital costs. I mean, you just get to work with them. Right. So, but, and it really briefs really cool. But the problem is, and you probably are smiling when you think that, am I going to give Mike or Luke away for six months if I'm a commander? You know, you ain't, you're not going to get six months from the majority of these people. You might get a month, maybe, if you're lucky. 
but I just know our culture in the Marine Corps, you know, <laughs> right. and right. You, that means everyone else has got to lift more. And so they're not going to, you're not getting backfilled until you actually EAS and get your DD-214. That unit's not getting another person. So you're not short. So that's, that's why I think if we could create programming, my vision is, is potentially going back up to the, you know, back up to the, to the organizational level in terms of policymaking and saying, what about the idea of doing a four and a half year enlistment where they get four years, but now in that half year, that six months, they get them into the Valor Club where, you know, and it's not everybody. And again, I don't have the answers for this yet, but I have ideas that let's just talk about this. And let's say if, if it's preventative, you know, preventative, which is very difficult to monetize, by the way, but the social capital costs we have of unemployment, of, of homelessness, of drug use that's associated with self-medication, with these poor people coming in. I got 5,000 of them, by the way, in LA, 5,000 homeless vets. Wow. How much, what's that cost a year? Right. You know, but what happens if we extended these guys or you could voluntarily do this four and a half years? Do four years on the date, come back out, and then do a kind of a crawl, walk, run with you know with relationships that we built, so that you're in school, but you got a partial paycheck. Maybe you're in the reserves. Maybe we consider you know that's a different command structure, you know, in terms of buckets of money. But maybe there's a way of offsetting where they could report to a, a reserve unit while they're there to help mentor and train and do those things, but yet still be in the geographic area that they want to live in because most of them aren't there. They don't stay in the bases that they finish because they're very isolated, all of them are isolated. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so, but those are things that I want to explore with the Valor Club and other partners, because I, I think I think that we can do a better job than what we're getting. And you now you could opt out of it. If Mike or Luke has a plan and you're going to go to school and you don't need the support, then you can opt out, but that's on you, you know? And then that way you, you can do what you want to do. Uh, but it's, you get, you're given choices. And that's, that's where I think the veterans uh, could benefit from. Absolutely. I mean, I love, I love these, these ideas and uh, yeah, I mean, we, I think we could do a whole episode just on that last, last yeah. little bit that you talked about alone. Well, um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of things with the research that, and I want your audience to understand um, my focus when I was getting those surveys, there was a lot of things that were, I thought I knew my Marines and sailors. That's all I'll say. In actuality, I didn't know them. And I will tell you that women and people of color, they have unique needs that are not being met. And, and my research has shown that. And I think that's the other policy change that we have to do because the, who's writing the policy? They're, they're people that look like you and I. They're white males that have right. historically written this, that we need to understand that for, you know, for women, for example, 14% of them uh, are, are, is what our numbers are in the female population, the demographic. It's the fastest growing demographic we have in, in, in the military. Right. But I would ask you, what's the 14% representation for general officers and or sergeant majors or master guns or, you know, whatever, whatever you know, E9s and E8s, what's the representation for women in that? And I don't know that answer, but I think it's something to ask the question of because, if we don't have women in these positions, you got a problem because you got to get that voice. And what I was hearing from women, you know, two over almost double of the surveys that I had, they were two times likely to go into entrepreneurship than men. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. I had no idea. And, and I was like, interesting. And that's why, again, for your audience going to get ready to do their dissertation, 
this is where the mixed method is so important because I didn't ask that question on the survey per se, but I found out about it. And then what I did was I was able to dig into that a little bit more. So again, a little pitch for mixed method. Very cool. And it, it was fascinating to me because I was like, God, we're not framing this right. You know, and why do you want to do that? And I found that they didn't get credit when they were in the service in terms of what they did. A lot of them were single moms. They had to leave at 1500, three o'clock uh, for to go pick up kids. So they get there at five in the morning. They make the arrangement with a gunny or the staff NCO. They work all the way through. They're not tied in with the PT, you know, physical training with the Marine, you know, the other service members that they normally have in our normal work day. They don't associate with them. And then everybody sees them leaving at 1500. They don't realize they've worked almost nine hours that day. You know, but they left to go pick up their kid and, and then they get looked at as a dirt bag. You know, that's the, it was constantly recurred in that. They love their service. Females, they were very proud and they should be very proud of their service. They, they have so much more to give. And they said, two of them specifically, it's in my work. If they don't treat me well, how are they going to treat my kids well? You know, right. And that saddened me wow. uh, as an officer wow. in so many ways because they quit before 10 years. And you know, that 10 year window is about that time, either you stay or go. And I felt like we got to get them into executive leadership positions. And so tying this all with policy with President Obama, and again, I don't get into the politics so much about various things. And there's people I align with and I don't align with in terms of, of ideology politically, but he really was fortuitive in this mission to integrate women into combat arms. Uh, and I was really against it because at the time, as a combat arms person, I was looking at strength and, com you know, sustained combat operations. There's no question women can be in combat on a machine gun doing their thing. But with, you know, with elongated combat operations for six and seven months, sometimes longer, where you're patrolling every day, you know, with loads and weights and can they get you off the X and all that stuff that we debated. I did. I was looking at it through a soda straw. I didn't look at it holistically right. because if we don't get these women, it's not about equality. It's about equity. If we don't get these women into these combat arms roles, they're never going to have a pipeline in terms of a check in the box to get to those ranks effectively because they can only get in there with support MOSs, which is right. military oc occupational specialties as your audience does, may, may or may not know. So those support MOSs only push out so many people to executive level positions. So we, we need to reframe that. You know, again, I think he was very fortuitive in doing that. Whether or not they can do it or not in terms of their individual physical strength, there needs to be a standard, no question. But I felt like as, an, you know, as a practitioner, as a scholar, the scholar supports that decision, which I appreciate now. I didn't at the time. Um, and so I guess I've learned so much more in terms of evidence-based uh, information that makes me hopefully a bit smarter than I am. I'm not overly that smart, but I, I try to, I try to surround myself with really smart people, but it became more granular as I was, as I was examining that going, dang, he, that was right. That was right. You know, the right decision for our nation, you know, absolutely. So. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, Michael, so I mean, I want to be mindful of our time here. And I think what we need to do is we're going to talk about your current and future projects here, but I think we should just go ahead and say it on air that we'll have to have a follow-up episode just to talk about the nuts and bolts of Valor Club. Uh, Cause you've described a lot about it kind of woven in your whole episode, this episode, but I think this would be really interesting exploration for everyone to see how you're going to bridge 
you know, some of these theoretical and scholarly findings to something practical and obviously very pragmatic as, as you uncovered. So uh, if you're willing to come back and talk about that, I just want to state that right now, because we would love to have you back. I'd be honored. I'd be honored. And I think, I think this model is going to work. I think it's something that is scalable. And it's, as you said, it, it's measurable. You have to measure success or failure so that you can adjust. And that's what um, I intend to do. We intend to do. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk about Dr. McDowell. What, what do you have going on currently or in the near future that, that you would like to share with our audience? Well, I'm trying to build buildings, <laughs> so <laughs> that's the biggest thing I've got up to as far as the closest fight anyway, but I do have plans of writing a, a book. Uh, I'd, I'd like to develop a resource for veterans. It's not just for vets, for anybody, but uh, really on, on how learning occurs, how we can better enhance our ability to cognitively uh, retain information from working member to long-term memory and how to be a better student. We're all non-traditional learners at this point in our lives, right. but it doesn't stop. And I think that people, well, I'm not going back to school or I'm not going to get another degree, which is great, but we're always learning. And I don't care if you're learning how to tie flies or you want to learn how to saddle a horse. It's about information retention and being able to minimize distraction. And a lot of people are going to be going to school, which is again, uh, the other point of the book uh, or the work anyway, uh, that we can better utilize, you know, minimize distractions, really enhance that experience you have of learning. I, I, I'm really troubled and I'm one of those people. I never thought I was really a great student, uh, but I wish a book like this back when I was in high school uh, would be given to me because I'd understand not only about pedagogy and what it means as an instructor, um, but how we minimize a lot of this stuff, cognitive, you know, load theory as, as Kirshner's work is great work and his colleagues have done, um, you know, information, you know, as far as cognitive overload uh, and stuff like that. It's very fascinating to me. And then tying it in with the knowledge, motivation, organizational influences of, of those individuals. How, what is motivation? You know, we, we learn, as you know, with the Marine Corps, uh, you know, motivate yours. You know, he's motivated, you know, or he's right. not motivated, but it, it ebbs and flows. And are you intrinsically motivated? You know, or do you understand the value of it? The cost value, the utility value. Do you understand, you know, what attribution is, you know, the, you know, the ability that we have of feeling like we can do it, the self-efficacy. Those are things, you know, do you have the resources? If you don't have the resources, that's okay too, but that's now your mission. You've got to find out and seek out those things. So that's the work I wanted to do. So it's kind of a hip pocket book that people could use and uh, in association with all the great stuff that's being out there that all these other authors have done, um, you know, that have already transitioned like us, they write a transition book. Well, this is more about learning. It's more about taking that stuff that you're going to be given and tap and, and how you process it effectively and remember it, because that's the hard part with TAP. They don't have a context, you know, with living right. autonomously. So it's really anyway. just check, check the boxes. Yep. You exactly. know, sometimes they don't even do that completely. And I, I couldn't agree more. That's one thing that I don't think society as a whole really acknowledges is that uh, we're always learning. You know, I, and it doesn't matter if we're in a transition, if we're a veteran, not a veteran, if we're going to higher education, if we're not, I mean, like you said, it could be 
tying the, the, the lure on a, on a fishing line, you know, I mean, we're always learning until the day you die, you're building those schema, you're processing things, you're building information on other information and filtering it and understanding the world through things that you had learned prior. Uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. And, and we have to understand that as, as a whole, I mean, definitely as, as veterans, uh, but as a society that the value on education is, it continuously happens <laughs> whether you realize it or not. No, I you totally know? agree. I totally agree. And that, and again, that's the, you know, do people really know, you know, I'm goal centered, I'm goal focused. Okay. Are you performance goal focused or are you mastery level goal focused? And, and, and I didn't know this prior to going to school. And if I can remember this stuff, anybody can. And so that's where I think by just putting a context that they'll understand, you know, I say, you know, make it, you know, we call it Barney style, you know, make it Barney style so that it's very easy to understand. And, um, you know, understand that some of these professors you're going to go to school with are probably the, the worst instructors there are in terms of pedagogy. They don't have, they're, they're, the, they're the smartest people, you know, in terms of content and expertise, but do they understand that actually it's easier to learn with peer learning than it is with, I mean, you're going to learn more with people closer to your level. And, and so utilize peer learning, utilize job aids, utilize all these things that that are very easy to do and then how to study and all that stuff. So I, I think that it'll be uh, something that I'd like to get out in the next, you know, within the next year. Very cool. Very cool. In my well, free time, you know, right. I have all this free time. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's how these things get done though. Usually is you know, when everybody else is in bed or before everyone gets up in the morning. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, today uh, you have been hearing from our very special guest, Dr. Michael McDowell. And like we mentioned before, we're going to have him back on so he can talk specifically in more detail about a project that he mentioned throughout this podcast called the Valor Club. But we're going to put links uh, to this episode, to the Valor Club and to the other things that Michael has mentioned that he's worked on. And when he completes some of the things in the future, like the book he just told the world about, we will mm -hmm. add links to that and keep everyone uh, up to date as he keeps us up to date. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, um, Dr. Luke McLeish, your host for Veterans and Academics. We thank you very much for listening and uh, being wonderful listeners out there that support us. And today we would like to thank Dr. Michael McDowell. Dr. McDowell, thank you so much. And again, thanks, everybody. And until next time, this has been Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McLeese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.